0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production.
1: Hi, this is Sarah Riff and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Today's guest is the longtime New York Times beauty columnist and founder of Ellis Brooklyn, a clean luxury fragrance brand, B. Shapiro. She is also the author of Skin Deep, Women on Skincare, Makeup, and Looking Their Best. After becoming pregnant with her daughter, Ellis, in 2013, B started cleaning up her beauty routine and found there were no sophisticated clean options for fragrance. Ellis Brooklyn officially debuted in June of 2015 and is currently an award-winning leader in the high-growth clean prestige fragrance market. Thank you so much for being here today, Bee. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. I mean, as well as these crazy times. I'm excited too, though. Yes. Where am I finding you? So I'm currently actually in Greenwich, Connecticut. I was one of those, you know, in the city, a lot of people left. I actually have been up here for two years. We were supposed to go back and then we decided to stay longer.
1: Okay. So you moved pre-COVID. We did. And is that something that you've been loving, like in terms of getting out of the city? Did you just feel that it was time?
0: You know, it's such a tricky question because I think you're based in LA, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that LA, you have like more, you just have more space for kids. The houses and the housing, the apartments, everything is a little bit bigger. And also, I just feel like in New York, everything was such a struggle, you know, like getting little kids into an Uber, getting little kids into the subway, like walking around while there's like trash from last night's party on the street. There was just a lot going on that I feel like was hard to deal with. That being said, I think it's great to have a baby when you're in New York. I think it's not so great when you have like toddlers that love to like pick up anything.
1: (laughs) Right. No, I, I remember that too, because I actually have taken my kids there at various stages of their development. And I just like to have a new baby and to walk around the city and you could just lose yourself. For hours. And that's really nice. I think, especially in those early days of when you have a baby and it feels very isolating, even if you don't know people just being surrounded by so many people walking around feels like you're part of the kind of like the collective energy, you know, in a nice way.
0: Absolutely. I I feel like when the kids were really little, you just pop them in that ergo baby or whatever the cool one is now. I feel like the mommy stuff is so much cooler now than when I had mine. For sure. Uh, But yeah, you can just walk around. And I think it was so easy to do playdates too, because there were so many people around. So I'm super grateful and like happy that I had the kids really young in New York. It's just that my kids are active. Like I have two little girls, but they're really active. And I think if you have active kids, there's like, no, it's much, much harder.
1: Yeah. So you don't want to be, especially right now, you wouldn't want to be cooped up in an apartment. So B, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Are you from the East Coast? No, I'm from Seattle. Oh, the rainy city.
0: (laughs) It's so dark. It's beautiful in August and September. And like the winter is literally like rainy and dark and like looks like Scandinavia and London for like four months I loved growing up there. I feel like it was like very dreamy. I feel like there was this like sense of, I don't know, it's not like a frontier, but I remember when I was growing up, it was really isolated. It was all the way up there and it just was like, okay, you want to start something? Go for it. You know, it was that kind of thing, that kind of culture, whereas like New York, as much as I love it, it's so funny here, if you tell somebody you have an idea, they're like, well, how are you going to fund it? who are your investors going to be? Like, how much is rent? Like, it's so funny. It's so money oriented.
1: Right. So much more literal. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, did you have a sense of the type of life that you envisioned for yourself? Did you imagine staying in Seattle? We always talk about that. We get to design the lives that ultimately fit us. You know, it's like you went from Seattle to New York to now Connecticut. And I know mm-hmm. I've had a big career journey along the way too, but I wonder if you had a sense growing up of what you envisioned for yourself or if you had a notion of what the idea of having it all would look like for you. Oh my gosh, you know,
0: I grew up pretty simply. I didn't have a particularly lavish lifestyle at all, but I knew I wanted to get out. And it's not that Seattle was bad. It's just that Seattle back then was pretty isolated up there and it wasn't very worldly. And so I knew I wanted to go to New York. I knew I wanted to travel more internationally. I didn't even know though what having it all meant. Did that mean just like having a nice apartment, having a nice car? Like I didn't think about details like that. I just knew that I wanted to be like in a super international, very worldly scene. But the funny part is, just to like, <laughs> I don't know if you remember the show Felicity, but of I was, I was obsessed. I was just totally romanticized for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go to New York. So that just goes to show you like back then, like the things we dreamed about were like these silly pop culture things that were obviously a dream. I mean, that's not the real New York by any means.
1: Yeah, no, I would dream about Scott Speedman. And if working at the Dean and DeLuca was the way to get him, then sign me up. I'd be a barista or whatever it is. (laughs) But yeah, I was very into that show too. So how did you get to New York? So I actually went to law school. I went
0: to Georgetown Law in D.C. And then from there, I got a law job in New York. So that's how I got here.
1: Okay. What sort of law were you pursuing?
0: So when you're in law school, you can just like get a regular degree and then decide later on. The job I got out of law school, I was a hedge fund lawyer.
1: Okay. So I I mean, I'm very curious how we jumped from hedge fund law to fragrance, but that's so incredible. How did you fall into the hedge fund world?
0: Honestly, I knew that I'd probably have to take a corporate law job because I didn't you know I liked litigation, but I just I knew what litigation would entail. and mm-hmm. I never loved law work, and so I was like, well, let me try to figure out a job where you can have relative life balance. And so I knew that litigation jobs weren't that because you're on cases and super intense and all that. so I thought litigation was super interesting, but I just didn't want to give up my life for it. so I took this job at a corporate thing. And this is frankly the offer that I got. Was at a hedge fund law firm. It wasn't purposeful.
1: It's interesting that already early on in your life, though, that you had a sense of what having a balance would look like for you and knowing that that would put you out of balance to have an all-consuming job mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it would not really allow for any other time or interest in your life. How long were you at that job? Oh my gosh, only eight months. Oh my God. Okay. So eight months in, you were like, this is not for me.
0: Yeah. So I think that one thing I learned, maybe this is because I'm in New York, is that we spend most of our waking hours at work. And I realized that my idea of finding a manageable law job so that I could, you know, have a life didn't really work. In fact, I was like there from 10 to 10, even though I had a great situation for lawyers and I still didn't have a life. So I was like, wait a second. So if this is actual adult life. Then I can't spend all my waking hours doing something I don't love.
1: Well, that's important that you learned that pretty early, right? Because this is soon after law school. Yeah, I was 25. Yeah, I think that there's people who go on for years and years and years on that sort of, you know, hamster wheel of, like you say, you're just kind of getting through so many things and then one day waking up and realizing that you've devoted all of your time to your career. You don't even like that job and you have no personal life. Mm, So that's amazing that you were able to realize that early on. So then did you consider staying in law? Did you stay in law or did you no? where did you transition at that point?
0: I figured I was young enough to where if I went to go try a bunch of things and I had to go back to law, it wasn't the end of the world. I felt like there was like a moment in time where I had to try stuff because I didn't really take that risk, right? I went straight from undergrad to law school because I didn't have a job lined up. And I wasn't one of those kids that knew, you know, when I was eight, exactly what I wanted to do. And and I was dreamy and I loved creative ideas, but what did that even mean, you know? So uh, I guess for all those (laughs) younger people out there, I'm like, you don't have to know what you want, but I think you have to be willing to take risks to figure out what you do want. Because I think if you don't take those risks, then you're always just gonna wander, wander like a voyeur. You're you're just gonna watch and then life will pass by. So I didn't want to be that. And so I quit the law. And then I decided that I was gonna try, you know, anything and everything I've ever wanted to be. It was it was super funny because <laughs> the three things was one, fine artist, two, actress, and then three a writer. And I don't know where I got actress from because I have no acting experience. But I thought, you know what, it'd be really cool to be an actor.
1: It was probably all I... that time watching Felicity. You were just like, look, I went the creative route. I went to law school and became a hedge fund lawyer. And then you know, if that doesn't work out, why not try acting? I love that this is so nonlinear. And by the way, that you all that you had the confidence in yourself because I think. One of the places that so many of us can get stuck is feeling like, oh my God, but I just already devoted all that time to law school. Obviously it's like time and energy and money, but ultimately if you're not happy, you are the only person who can get in the ship and steer towards another direction. Otherwise, like you say, you're going to waste so much time just wishing you've done something differently.
0: Totally. Also, I'm not a very nostalgic person, so I never, you know, how you mentioned right there. Like, I thought I never thought about. Well, I spent all this time doing law, and like, oh my gosh, I never thought that. Isn't that interesting? Like, yeah.
1: And your family didn't do that either, right?
0: Yeah. So my parents are not tiger parents in the <laughs> sense that they weren't super after me. All that ambition to like get out of Seattle was my own. And it, it's interesting because when I told my mom I was putting the law firm. Most parents, right, Asian or not, would definitely say something like, really, are you sure? My mom was like, oh, that's so great. You were really unhappy there anyways.
1: <laughs> what a good mom, honestly. So interesting, right? Yeah, but I think that that's so important. And, and I'm sure now as a mother that you realize that too, is that sometimes also parents can see, you know, behaviors and things in their children that maybe you didn't even realize right away at the time, and you were trying to make it work. And she could tell you were not happy. And to support that has to feel really good from your perspective, I'm sure, too.
0: I was very surprised by her response. Not that she put a lot of pressure on me ever. But you know, it, it's it's a big change. And, um, and yeah, I do think about that as parenting now, because I think one thing, at least my generation, when I was growing up was not taught, I don't think we were taught to pursue our passions, like right off the bat. I'm 39. So I felt like when I graduated, we were taught to like go get a job, right? Get that first internship. That may be different for kids today. But I feel like it was so like you have to get an internship somewhere or get an assistant job somewhere.
1: I think what's different about it now too is when we were growing up, you didn't first of all, there was no Instagram, you know, in terms of your reference points for comparing yourself to a prospective career or to what other people were doing. It's like, I didn't have peers who had skipped all of those steps and who were like the CEO of a brand that they had started, you know? So that that wasn't like even in the realm of my thought, like I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, if I want to pursue X, Y, or Z, like I'm going to start at the very lowest
0: possible Mm -hmm.
1: position and I'm going to work my way up. And I know that now sometimes I have a lot of admiration and I don't want to say jealousy or envy because, you know, I think that there's value to both sides. But I think a lot of younger people now are just like, well, I don't have to go through X, Y, and Z. I'm just going to start my own thing, which I think is incredible. But I also think that it's limited a lot of people too, because there's like a less tolerance in a way for a certain amount of hard work, I think, and also for putting in your time and putting in your dues. But I know a lot of younger people who have such a hard time even getting a job because they honestly think that they're already too good for everything. You know what I mean? They don't want to start in the assistant route. And I think for us growing up, that was what you did.
0: Also, I mean, managing younger people or younger talent, and I have great younger people working for me now, but I definitely went through a few before figuring out, A, how to like bring the best out of them, but also B, how to interact with them, right? Because they are, they did grow up quite differently. And I think it's so interesting because the ones that truly have the entrepreneurial spirit and that hunger are like a hundred times more open and wise than I was at that age. But yes, you have the vast majority of them not willing to put in that hard work that the stripes that we earn. I have to say this, too. I think one thing that I had a joke about with a friend of mine is managing young people. Like I said, you have the ones that are amazing and have the hunger and the the entrepreneurial spirit. But then you have these that feel like their opinions in the workplace. I'm not talking about like social opinions, et cetera. Need to be heard at every second. And I was like, no, wait a second. You actually have to earn the stripes to voice your opinion.
1: Do you know what I'm talking about? You have I t- like this. I totally know what you're talking about, but I think it's just that's again, it's just a different time. And I think it's like you think about also even the way that you're raising your girls too now, which I'm sure is to be outspoken and fearless and to like stand in their values. Obviously, hopefully they have an understanding of when to share those things and also when to defer to someone who's maybe in a superior position, but it's interesting the way that it's all going to play out.
0: Yes, I agree.
1: Okay. So you decide you leave the firm and then you consider fine art, acting and writing. So did you start going on auditions? I did.
0: (laughs) The auditions were so bad. Truly. They were so bad and I should, I mean, I don't even know what gave me the idea that I thought I could even do this. They were so bad to the point that I didn't even know a headshot was supposed to be a, like a whole shoot of paper. I, my headshot was like much smaller <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and I was just like, why do you need a picture of your head that big? Like I remember thinking about like stupid things. Did you get any roles? No, I got booked on some like weird, like modeling pamphlet stuff instead. And like okay. not even real models, right? It's like natural lifestyle.
1: As long as you can add model to your byline, that's, I think that sufficed. No, I'm going to intro you that way. Former model. Oh
0: my God. Can you imagine now that I'm in beauty? I can't say that. Oh my goodness. It'd be like the classic scenario where somebody shows up and it's like, I'm a model. And you're like, for what?
1: <laughs> yeah. But you know what? It's all fluid. It's all open now. And then you started, you leaned into writing though, right? I did.
0: I discovered I loved it. And I think there, I, for a second there, I couldn't figure out why I went to law school because I was like, oh my goodness, I got so jumbled and like felt like I had to do something that I didn't know why. And then I realized why. It's because I do love writing. I do love reading. I love the written word. And that's why. And so it, I just didn't want to do it in a legal way. I wanted to do it in a creative way. And I've always loved fashion and design and pop culture. And, It's just so interesting because when I was younger, I didn't even think about this as a possible job at all. I I love writing still.
1: And so now you have a column for the New York Times. I do. Okay. So tell us more about that
0: a lot of it's luck, right? And being in the right place at the right time, a lot of it's hard work. So I was writing for all these different publications. And then I started writing for the New York Times Style Magazine. So mm-hmm. uh, T had just launched and it was looking for online content. So really it was like timing because I blind pitched them over email and it was a good pitch, but still like I had <laughs> the shock like they wrote back and they signed it. And the story published, because sometimes stories get killed. So everything just kind of like rolled from there. And then I got more assignments. And then I moved to the paper eventually, like a few years later. But it really was from cold pitching. That was like my entree.
1: And for anyone who doesn't understand cold pitching, had you, you had written a story already that you submitted or no? No. You submitted some of your stories? No, you submitted a story idea. So, okay, so story idea. So do you remember what the story idea was that they first accepted? I had three
0: pitches and they accepted two of them. And because I was working for that art collector, uh, I had some access and in, into that art world. And so one was about a Terrence Co exhibit, mm-hmm. which was the artist back then. Another one was about Ryan McGinley, which is another artist who was collaborating with a fashion line.
1: Ryan McGinley had such a big moment. So big. Yeah, I remember this. Okay. And then, so you went from there and then you moved into the paper. Now you find yourself in the world of clean fragrance mm-hmm. with your own brand, Ellis Brooklyn. So tell us about how that started for you.
0: So I started at the New York Times covering fashion, pop culture, the intersection with like art, etc. And then beauty fell in my lap. So I moved to the paper and I was just, I was like number fifth reporter in fashion
1: out of five. <laughs> okay you gotta be somewhere you're you are you you were on the list
0: (laughs) I was on the list you know barely hanging on with my fingernails and uh the beauty columnist at the time left to take her dream job and travel and so they asked me if I want to take the column and I was like Sure. Yes. I mean, first of all, there is that like saying like you should just say yes to these opportunities. So I was like, okay, yes. But I didn't know anything about beauty, like very little.
1: Did you have passion for beauty? Was it something you had personal interest? You know,
0: in? I liked it, but mm-hmm. I wasn't like some beauty junkie at that point. I always liked it. I did grow up in Seattle in the grunge era. So there was like manic panic in my life. And there was like grungy eyeliner, but it wasn't like I loved fashion in my 20s. So it was in the beginning, like, okay, let's just see how this goes. And I'm so happy I switched actually, because as I've gotten older, I care way more about beauty. I think it's so interesting how much it's flip flopped. And then as I become a parent, I care even more about beauty.
1: (laughs) Right. So it sounds like it all unfolded at the right time for you.
0: Yeah, that's totally luck. Like I have no, I I mean, I was just lucky, literally. And so I started covering beauty from there and I was reviewing products like left and right. It was super fascinating because I was learning a lot. A lot of stuff is new to me. So finding out about formulas and like how marketing happens and a lot of it stuff was brand, brand new. And then I became pregnant. And so when I got pregnant, I think this happens to a lot of women. I don't think like my story is unique in that way, but I just started becoming really cautious and much more aware of what I was eating and also what I was putting in my body. So it really went from there. And I was trying so many products still. And I love fragrance. And so I just couldn't find, at that point in time, which was almost seven years ago now, I couldn't find a clean, luxury fragrance. It was either these like hippy-dippy oils, which there's nothing wrong with that, or the, you know, classic, really beautiful, but, you know, just your regular luxury fragrance. And I wanted both. So that was how it began. The funny part about brand foundings, is when I talk to my other founders, you just do it right? Like you think, you think, but there's not that much thought to just then start doing it. So I started asking like friends of friends, like for contacts, like because you define stuff like box packagers and spray pump manufacture. I mean, stuff that I knew nothing about. Right. So, but
1: forget about the packaging. How do you even make a fragrance? I mean, was this something that you were doing on <laughs> your own or did you cut, like have to find chemists or how involved was it?
0: Sure. So in the very beginning, I thought, well, I worked in beauty for so long I'd worked in beauty for like four or five years at that point so I was like oh maybe I'll try my hand at like mixing essential oils or something so I bought a bunch of ingredients it was horrific it was not at all close to what my ideal was and then I realized that I have to work with a perfume house and so then it was trying to get a perfume house to get to call me back I thought I was like hot stuff you know I was like oh my <laughs> gosh I'm in the New York Times Like, why yeah. back? <laughs>
1: That's when you pull out your lawyer skills, you know, and you can threaten with really great, big lawyerly words and, you know, Mm,
0: yes, on letterhead
1: (laughs) on letterhead. That's when that's useful.
0: Yeah. So, no, I, I work with really amazing perfumers and that definitely was the right choice because I think if you want to make a luxury product, that's the way you have to go. Some of them spend their whole lives practicing to be or studying to be in this world and to be a master perfumer. So I definitely got into the right lane, but it took like two years before a product came out.
1: So how involved is it in terms of wanting to stay clean? If you're working with a perfumer, is it about the exclusion of certain chemicals? Is it an additive thing or what are the kind of like the key differentials there? Sure.
0: So I think the baseline is that every fragrance brand should be IFRA compliant. IFRA is I-F-R-A. It's this international regulatory body that you have to be compliant with in order to register in the EU. So the EU, I'm not sure for those clean beauty people out there, they ban a bunch of ingredients, something like 2,800 or something. It, the list is always growing. Ingredients that the U.S. does not regulate at all. So I think that's a really good baseline because that body, the EU legislation body is actively looking at ingredients, actively looking at the science. And you can at least be like, okay, that's the baseline. So I mean, think right. you start from there. You figure out if a brand is if IFRA compliant. And you can, you can literally email them, email their info at, or their customer service line or whatever. This should be something that like, they should be able to answer easily. And if they're, and they can't, I would be a little suspect. I would just be like, "Mm, this brand may not be dotting its I's and crossing its T's. And then you go from there. And we, on top of that, exclude, we have a no, no list on top of the IFRA compliance. So that is just derived from my experience at the times, but also just, you know, doing research, talking to the perfume house, talking to other clean beauty brands. So that list evolves, you know, because sometimes more products will, more ingredients will be banned uh, or more research is done and you find out more stuff about something.
1: We had another guest, Randy Christensen from Necessaire. I don't know if you know the body line. But, you know, we I were talking do. all about that in terms of obviously, you know, a lot of people are making a bigger effort to eat organic and to be mindful of the things that they're putting in their body as well as on their body and and how unregulated it is in the U.S. and how many endocrine disruptors and mm. other things that we're all exposing ourselves to on the daily in the name of beauty. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'll definitely expose myself to some disruption in the name of beauty for a good cause. But mm-hmm. when you can find a little balance, you want to. And I love that you were committed to creating clean fragrance so that you could kind of continue in a holistic effort to be conscious of what you were putting on your skin.
0: Yes. So I do think there's different schools of clean thought, right? You have some clean beauty people who are, who are like these 100% natural people. And I'm probably more of similar school to Randy, right? We're probably more, if you look at the clean spectrum, we're probably more similar as far as brands are concerned and like brand ethos and commitment, because I don't think just saying 100% natural is solving the problem, because I think what we're really after is safety. And so, and then for us also sustainability, because we I just feel like as a clean brand, we should be sustainable too. So those are things that we also look at. So, and also the other thing about natural or not natural is that what is natural these days? Because once you get into the chemistry of making something, Sometimes people take one molecule from this, another molecule from that, and they originally were "quote unquote" natural, but then are they still natural? So it gets a little bit confusing, I think, when you break it down that. And I do think the beauty industry, the clean beauty industry, started out as natural, not natural, and it's moving away from that. Now you have these beautiful brands like Necessaire, you have brands like Ellis Brooklyn, who are putting forth these really sophisticated options that, when you switch over from another non-clean brand, you're it doesn't not feel it at like all. a
1: concession, right? And exactly. that's what I love about it. And, and thank you so much. Cause I know you sent me some fragrances and I can attest they all smell incredible. And I am a particular, oh, I love fragrance. Is it tacit? I have a friend who has a candle line and he calls it a tacit experience.
0: It is. I think for people who have recognized that sense of smell matters. And I definitely think during this pandemic, we've paid more attention to that. I think it's because we slow down. We're stuck at home. You want your space, you want your vibe, you want everything to feel tacitly, right? Mm -hmm. Like wonderful. And I think scent is- This This is a drinking
1: game where we say tacit, by the way.
0: (laughs) I want to play. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm
1: just saying we could do it right now. I've never used tacit before this conversation, but I feel like I'm going to use it a lot. Ooh, I like it. But it's true. You want to set a tacit experience. You want to smell good. You want your home Mm -hmm. to feel comfortable and welcoming and- beautiful and sensual and all all of the things that fragrance elicits
0: definitely and i think that sensuality part is has been missing for some of us right i think we're rushing around especially in the us i find Like we're rushing around a lot. We're not necessarily like quote unquote taking a stand to stop to smell the roses, right? There's a reason why that saying has been around for so long. It's because when you breathe in something, you really are pausing time in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very different from anything visual. Like a visual, we're constantly looking like at news, at Instagram or whatever it is. But there's something about smell that pauses time for a second.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like that. in your journey of creating a brand, obviously becoming a founder. And like you said, you just kind of do it and there's no real guidebook. Have you been able to, and this applies to the rest of your life. Are you able to take the victories of your accomplishments along the way? How are you in terms of goal setting? Like, are you pretty fluid or do you have major posts to identify success to you or to identify progress? How do you work?
0: That's such a good question. So I actually started working with a life coach last September because I realized, you know, the same quality that an I think, probably Aerie founder out there is that hunger, that drive, that hunger and drive. The flip side of that is you're never satisfied, right? Why are you still hungry? If you like reach that goal? Well,
1: and do you ever want to not be hungry? That's the thing too see, I don't, I don't think so. You don't think you ever want to not be hungry. Like you want to always have that drive. Exactly. Isn't that your chi? Isn't that your force of life, right? Is to want more, to desire more, to propel yourself. But then also you don't want to be a miserable person who doesn't ever appreciate your success. Exactly. I That's- see you be, I see you. <laughs> so what did your life coach say? It's interesting when I first started
0: working with the life coach, I thought we're going to talk a lot more about business, and in fact, because I think I am a founder, your self-issues actually influence how business is going, because we're so linked together. And so I thought we were going to start talking about like how I manage people, how I do this, how I do that. In fact, it started to be how I manage myself. Mhm. This is like actually quite profound, I think, is that a lot of times that hunger... For people or that are built in people is sometimes about worth, self worth, self achievement, self goals. And I think that separating out the fact that you want to succeed and using your successes as trying to like fuel your own self worth is really important.
1: Does that make sense at all? I know that sounds kind of like. No, it's heavy. And I think the thing is, is that yes, it's crazy because I think sometimes. And tell me if you feel differently, you don't strike me as someone who has issues with her own sense of self-worth. And yet, if you truncate that into just being about professional success, it doesn't feel like it is an extension of your own kind of personal emotional self-worth, but perhaps it is on a deeper level that we don't really perceive, right?
0: Yeah. I think that if you think, look at any successful person, they're after something. I realize, and what I'm still working on is an active endeavor, is that it's not tied personally to you. I remember in the early days of Ellis Brooklyn, like it was a day when, because, you know, when you have like a bad day at the New York Times, you might have a bad story. And then, you know, a week later, you can forget about that story. And then you're good as your next story. Sometimes on days for Ellis Brooklyn, the days are amazing. But sometimes there's days when you have a huge win, but then you also have a huge loss. And somehow your lot your win gets negated. And so you're on this emotional roller coaster ride. And I think what I've gotten better at is to not personally get on that ride. <laughs> like right. try to separate like the the business roller coaster, which is gonna be the nature of any new brand,
1: with like personal stuff. And then referring to personal stuff too, as you mentioned, you're also a mom of two young girls. Yeah. And you're a founder and you're stuck in your home working and you're in a (laughs) pandemic. So, you know, I wonder for you, we talk about having to wear many hats simultaneously. Do you ever feel like you are crushing it at home? You are super connected to your family. You feel locked in at being a mom and your work is suffering or vice versa?
0: Oh, for sure. So, Interesting enough, when we first moved to Greenwich, I was so miserable because my commute time like tripled. I went from like going 30 minutes from Brooklyn to the city to an hour, hour and a half, you know, hour and a half really door to door. And so that's three hours a day. I'm commuting. It was insane. And so the silver lining of the pandemic for me is I've actually become more productive because I'm not spending three hours a day on the train. So that part was really interesting because there's a couple other founders I know who are like, you need to make your life and your work revolve around each other. And I, I saw Bobby Brown, the makeup founder this summer at her Sag Harbor home. And she was telling me, like, when she had, when her kids were really little, she built a studio at her house in Montclair. And I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense because otherwise, you feel crazy. You feel like crazy. Like I'm running to the
1: city. Then I'm running home. I switch into mommy mode. Right. And you're late to get into the studio in the city. And then you come home, you've missed bath time and all these sort of like essential kind of end of day things to at least lock in with your kids. So you end up feeling like you've come up short on all fronts. Yes.
0: You feel like you lost on all fronts. So like, I I really like have been thinking about that a lot. And like, even after the pandemic, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try to figure out a way. So I have some sort of creative haven here. So I'm not commuting all the time. and still able to see the bath times or the occasional tennis lessons and like not have my schedule, have absolutely no breathing room at all.
1: Right. It's sort of like being back in that law firm, all of a sudden realizing that (laughs) like the hours in your day don't really allow, once you add in those three hours of commute time, to find any sort of balance with your home life also.
0: Yes, that's totally true. That's so funny. I never thought about it that way. But yes, it's. I, I overpacked my schedule. Like I was miserable and I didn't even, I knew it, but I didn't understand why. And the pandemic like forced me to slow down and be stuck. And I also used to travel a little bit for work. So it was just like, okay, that's been really good actually.
1: There have been so many blessings. I wonder now having a little bit of distance from everything, living a lot closer to that sort of international life that you envisioned for yourself, also managing, having the family, being a founder, and also you still write as well, correct? I
0: do. I still tried I mean, I've definitely cut back. And the interesting thing is I didn't start the line because I didn't love writing. So the moments I write now are really sweet for me. Like they're like a really nice moment.
1: Do you think that your perception of what having it all looks different to you today?
0: So I think that, well, the contours are all filled in, right? So on the one hand, it does look the same, but much more alive. I had no idea what that meant when I was younger. And now having done the international travel, like Ellis Brook when I sold in other countries and having a family, I sort of come full circle because on the one hand, I have this like, oh, it sounds really amazing on paper part of my life. But then I also realized like going on a hike, like things I used to do even when I was little are amazing. And so I, I think that before I was always looking outwards, like I'm trying to get out of here. And now I'm like, okay, I'm here. I can come back around.
1: I love that really quickly. We have a fun segment called the riff and this could be a product or a practice or a service that you use that makes your life better or easier or something that you do to kind of make things run more smoothly for you in any capacity. Is there anything that fits the bill?
0: So I've been running a lot.
1: Is that something new?
0: I've always ran, but I used to be more like diligent about like, Oh, how fast am I running? Oh, uh," you know, how long did I run? And then I took that all away. And now I run a minimum of 30 minutes, which is not that long. And I run however slow I want, however fast I want that day. It's like an excuse to go outside. So I only run outside too. It's been so mind clearing and wonderful. And like, I get to geek out about running shoes. (laughs) I dare say,
1: do you have a tacit experience when you run?
0: I have a mind clearing. Like I'm thinking about nothing except for my like techno <laughs> That's Amazing <listening> too.
1: <laughs> Amazing. For anybody who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? Where can they follow along with the brand and with you personally?
0: I personally am at B Shapiro, B-E-E Shapiro on Instagram. And uh, Ellis Brooklyn is also on Instagram.
1: And is Ellis Brooklyn available to purchase via the website or any particular retailer?
0: Sure. It's available on the website. It's also available at Sephora. And it's available at our own e-com. So www.ellisbrooklyn.com.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time. And I hope that we both remember to stop and smell the roses.
0: Ah, such a good finish. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women. And I hope you're enjoying it too please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at having it all podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore riff. I love hearing from you guys. So please keep up the DMS and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week.